Detective Somerset. I'm Detective Mills. I want you to look and I want you to listen, okay? Now, I wasn't standing around guarding the Taco Bell. I've worked homicide five years. Not here. I understand that. Well, over the next seven days, Detective, you'll do me the favor of remembering that. Dex! You wanna come take a look at this? Ladies and gentlemen, we now have ourselves a homicide. Y'all seven deadly sins, Captain. Gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, pride, lust, and envy. You can expect five more of these. Honestly, I've never seen anything like this. No. If we catch John Doe, and he turns out to be the devil, I mean, if he's Satan himself, that might live up to our expectations, but he's not the devil. He's just a man. Captain! You're looking for me. What? California, stay away from me. Stay away from me now. Don't, don't, don't come in here. Whatever you hear, stay away. John Doe has the upper hand. That's shorty with the box. Who's in the box? No, what's in the box? What's in the fucking box? Seven is a very simple, uh, almost one of the mill crime procedural done expertly by David Fincher and uh, the cast and, um, and with awesome twists and turns that turn it from a crime film into uh, probably one of the scariest horror films I've ever seen. Hello and welcome back to Scream Addicts. I'm your host Jinx and that was Ryan Prouse talking about David Fincher's 1995 horror thriller Seven. Mr. Prouse is a filmmaker known for the recent film Low Life, which he co-wrote and directed. And if you haven't seen Low Life yet, fix that immediately. Anyway, Mr. Prouse, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me on. This is really uh, exciting to talk about one of the greatest movies in the last 25 years or so <laughs> oh my god has it been that long what is, oh. it? is it 30 years is it 40 years how, we, how long i think been? it was it was 95 so we're coming up on a quarter century that uh and i'm old i'm getting so old um, yeah, that's how they get you <laughs> god uh so can i ask out of any horror movie you might have chosen to discuss why uh why go with seven yeah i'm a big uh crime film buff and i this movie and a big horror film buff, but this movie like uh, so sort of deftly weaves those two uh, uh, genres together. And yeah, I'm just into that kind of idea of like how to approach genre from sort of a left turn or mixed stuff to where you haven't really seen it. I mean, it's funny. It's like when you pitch this thing, it's very sort of, I mean, it's like literally, you know, buddy cops and the whole um, the whole uh, setup of like the seven deadly sins serial killer thing just seems so cheesy and like everything that they kind of do with it, you know, makes it something special, which is really exciting to me. Yeah, you know, it, it's funny in, uh, in emailing one another about this episode, you had mentioned that you might have uh, might have gone with No Country for Old Men had Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead not already tackled it in an Benson earlier and Moorhead! <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it, it's funny. I, I just sort of had that in the back of my mind when I was rewatching Seven, and I hadn't seen the movie in quite some time. Uh, I love it, but I just, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's tough to revisit even old favorites these days. But, uh, you know, it, it, it struck me that there are a couple of interesting parallels between Seven and No Country, you know, both sort of ride that line between thriller and horror, sure, and they feature aging lawmen chasing after an evil they can't quite fathom or, you know, they haven't quite seen in their long careers, but also those same yeah, protagonists. Yeah, I hadn't really even thought of that. Yeah, that's yeah, a cool I mean, idea. They're both kind of men who feel as though the world has passed them by, that they don't really understand it anymore, they don't recognize it anymore, with a... With no country, it's Tommy Lee Jones's uh, is it Ed Tom Bell, and in Seven, it's Morgan Freeman's uh, William Somerset. So, can I ask when you when you landed on those two movies to discuss? Did you consider the similarities between them when it comes to their heroes? And if so, why does that particular kind of character appeal to you? Would you say I didn't, and that, that's a that's a really cool sort of connection. I think it was more of like 
tonally, it was exciting to me that, you know, they both took either like a crime thriller or, or like a thriller setup and injected horror into it. And, and the horror kind of sneaks into it um, and kind of gradually just, I, I think, like makes its presence known, which I think that's why they're both like, you know, really unsettled me because they feel, I mean, they're definitely pulpy, but they do feel like, you know, I mean, real world, it's not like a, a ghost or something like that. But then it's also like they do have that kind of like scary ghost quality to them. I don't know. That's a cool connection that I did not make before. And I don't think I'd considered it, you know, until I think there is an early line in the film where uh, Somerset actually says, I don't understand this place anymore. And uh, Arlie Ermey's you mm-hmm. know, superior says it was always this way. And he just sort of you know, with a shrug says, eh, maybe it was. And that seemed to me, I mean, that might very well be a conversation that Tommy Lee Jones has in No Country. But, you know, it struck me at the very end of both movies, you know, we are left with men who are, you know, I think meant to be mentors. They are uh, of an older generation. They're meant to be passing their knowledge along to a younger generation. And yet, or at least leaving the world behind the younger men. And at the end, you know, the younger generation sort of fails them. They're, they're left standing alone. Uh, you know, uh, in, in the case of No Country, we have, uh, oh, Llewellyn Moss, who dies in, uh, in Seven, obviously. Uh, spoilers for a 24-year-old movie. But he, uh, he effectively ends his career as a lawman. And I think we're meant to understand that he's likely a completely broken human being by the end of it. And as a result, we have a lawman who... Yeah, he's uh, shattered, if not dead. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God knows what becomes of him a day after the events of the movie. You know, I, I think he's 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 likely done for. I, I see a padded cell in that man's future. But um, but what kills me is that Somerset, a man who had long looked to retirement, he just wanted to get away. He just wanted a simple life. Uh, he's now left with nobody to pass the baton to, and as a result, you get the sense that he's going to stay on the job. And there's there's a tragedy in that, I think, that's kind of, I don't know, it just, it, it's one of the many things about the movie that sort of haunts me after viewing it each time. Yeah, and it, I mean, and it, they're both, like, coming up to, against, like, just evil too big for them, or, like, even, like, you think the way they're setting up Somerset, like, you know, being this pessimistic character, like, he's gonna kind of realize the opposite or Brad Pitt brings the, uh, like the optimism to him and, and there's going to be some kind of conclusion and that, and that really is that horror ending. Um, same thing with no country where it's just like, yeah, this is too big to kind of wrap up in a movie. You know, it's like you're up against forces way darker and deeper than you kind of realize. <laughs> and it's funny too, talking about those two men, you know, uh, Somerset and Mills, the, uh, the Brad Pitt character, I, you know, it's it's curious the way the film immediately gives us the contrast and sort of early antagonism between those two. And what's really interesting to me is it's never fully resolved in the film. There is kind of a fondness between the two that develops. But uh, even up until their final moments together, these are men who are always at odds with how they do their job, how they handle stress, how they perform as detectives under that stress, their philosophies about the work they do uh, and how it's vastly different from one another. And Mills... You know, he he's presented as a young, impulsive hothead who has much to learn from his wizened mentor, and he learns nothing. He learns nothing at all. He has no arc in the film whatsoever. I think it's one of the movie's many tragedies, but, you know, it, it feels real as a result. Yeah, and it feels like, I mean, it's like fully, like, that's not how movies are supposed to work. And, you know, the audience, even if you don't know, you know, sort of structure or, or anything, they 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 feel like, okay, this is going to get resolved. And, you know, even something like, uh, like Silence of the Lambs or something like that has like a pretty linear, like sort of finale to the thing. And yeah, that's, that's so cool in the movie. And I'm, I mean, I, I saw it in the theater, like when it first came out and it was just like, it was that like smack across the face, like, Oh wait, movies can actually do this. Like, like, and, and, <laughs> big Hollywood movies can actually like end like that. Like it was, it was pretty incredible. And it's sad too, that I mean, back then that seemed rare. And now, you know, again, we're nearly a quarter of a century out from its first release and it still feels kind of rare for a studio movie to take risks like that. You know, I, 
I gotta wonder if we would have a movie like Seven made today and released on 2,500 screens that has that ending. And yet, it's the ending that got everybody to see it, you know? Uh, that is why everybody... I think, you know, whether they knew about the ending... You know, it's funny you mentioned having uh, having seen the movie when it was in a theater, right? Had the ending been spoiled for you in advance, or did you have any idea what was coming? No, but I do remember there being, like... I mean, it was like, you know... Well, I was, like, early high school, but I do remember it being, like, talk of, like, oh, man, this there's something cool with this movie. It was kind of in the same like ether as like usual suspects or something like that. So you knew that there was kind of something coming, but um, yeah, it, the, the way it works so well that it's just like, there's no way you're going into that movie or halfway through it. And you're like, Oh yeah, our head's going to end up in a box here. <laughs> like it's just, it's such a wild turn, you know, I kid you not. I, uh, I think up until that point we had already had sort of uh a handful of serial killer movies uh, in the wake of Silence of the Lambs coming out, and they all felt a bit, you know, even the ones that I like, they all felt a little bit formulaic by the time that Seven came out. So I, I wasn't super excited to see it, even though I was, you know, just starting to get into darker movies at the time and, you know, uh, starting to watch horror classics and reading Fangoria magazine. And, you know, Seven should have been, you know, catnip for me, but for whatever reason, I didn't really have much of an interest in seeing it. And, uh, I remember being on a school field trip and one of my buddies telling me, no, no, you have to see this movie. It's crazy because, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the hero of the movie, his, uh, his girlfriend's head winds up in a box at the end of it. And I'm just like, should I know that in advance? Should, uh, should, okay, whatever. And I, yeah, well, the inevitability of, of (laughs) (laughs) reached you from outside of the movie. (laughs) Damn that John Doe. But, uh, yeah, I didn't see it until VHS and, uh, it, it still blew me away. Even then I remember, uh, even knowing the ending was coming, there was this sort of weird psycho Janet Lee in the shower kind of thing where I'm like, okay, you know, every time I rewatch psycho, the movie tricks me into thinking that, um, uh, Marion Crane is going to live this time. You know, maybe this time. Yeah, you don't ever because it's just not the way movies work. It's so cool. Like, I mean, you can't. It, it can't be every time. But like, yeah, if you can mess with the form like that, it's always so exciting. <laughs> and I, you know, I think I had that feeling the first time I watched Seven. I I knew she was going to die, but the the character is so sweet, and the movie takes such pains in sort of uh, investing us, you know, in that character that I I didn't want her to meet that end and I kept hoping that my friend was wrong even when we got to the scene where there's a box being delivered I was like no it can't be it can't be her and you know as a result like even though you know I had fully been spoiled that moment had such an impact even then that it just killed me and it does every time still yeah and they and they do like you mentioned with her character they do such a good job of like it feels it does feel like um, like the endearing you to her feels organic and it doesn't feel like put on or anything like they're just these, these really cool um, little slight moments of character and like, you know, like personality that come through each of the characters that like it, 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 it feels invisible, but then, yeah, as you kind of like watch it and start like breaking it down, you're like, Oh, I can see a little bit more of like the strings of where that stuff was at. But like, even just, you know, like, the fact that uh, Mills doesn't know she's pregnant, but Somerset does and, you know, like endearing her to him. So then like it's both of them are, are kind of like uh, share like some kind of secret or some kind of like personal relationship with her is, is like a really cool way to get all three of them involved in it beyond it just being obviously terrible that that happens. But yeah, it's, it's really, I mean, it's genius how it, it's sort of set up and paid off. Yeah, and, you know, that's a very good point. I love that the movie allows itself to be kind of such a character piece at times and refuses to simply wallow in genre in its first half. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, the scene that you mentioned, you know, that sort of revelation, you know, that that great diner sequence. And, you know, even the dinner table scene with the trio of leads when, uh, you know, Tracy winds up being the one who manages to bring Somerset and Mills together. You know, I... I, I I love that the movie takes such pains in uh, again in investing us in those characters, and as a result, it hurts so much more at the end when uh well what happens. Well, it's it, it's the perfect amount of yeah, definitely, and it's the perfect amount of that of characterization like that makes it the cool pulp thriller thing still, where it's like 
you know, the, the plot and everything really inform like who those people are and those people inform like the plot moving forward. And, you know, you have like, you're going through this process of like watching all these bodies mount up, the body count mount up or whatever, but you don't even realize like, like the main characters, it's like, Oh, they're actually going to become part of that, that serial killing plot or whatever, which is just, uh, again, like the layers of how you, they kind of get you into those paths is, is really like interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, it's funny for this rewatch. I, I, I've seen the movie many times over the years, but for whatever reason, up until this rewatch, my memories of the film were that Mills is the hero. You know, he's young and he's handsome and he's played by Brad Pitt, who was top billed in the trailer, which, uh, in hindsight is madness, but uh, rewatching the film this time around, he isn't really the hero at all, is he? You know, I, Mills is treated as kind of a a dim jackass throughout the film. Like, he, he wants to do good. Well, so you start with Somerset, and it's like his whole whole trajectory of, like, wanting the house and wanting to leave, and this guy's coming in, and he's got to, like, you know... Again, I, I like... Kind of like what you said earlier about like I don't know I wanted to see it like I do remember when they were like the trailer and then pitching it it just looks it did look corny where it was like okay the the old cop and the young cop and the young guy's got to come in and they've got seven days to find this murder or whatever it, it all felt like super forced but then you know when you actually again in the execution they obviously stuck the landing but like yeah it's definitely it's Somerset's movie I mean that's like with my many, many rewatches, that's my one, not a gripe, but like my one thing I always kind of go back and forth on is the ending feels like it takes it away from, I mean, it's understandable because it's, um, it's the, the you know, that, that the main crux is on the couple and Brad Pitt's character, but like, it kind of feels like it like takes the wind out of his story a little bit. Like it should have kind of, you know, sort of wrapped up a bit more with Somerset than with Mills, but but he is left. He's like the last man standing, so you know, and he's got like a new insight on like, okay, I'll be around and I'm gonna help. But yeah, I don't know. There is it is his movie, you know, straight up because he leads him through the whole thing. He's got like the connects on like the you know knows the FBI stuff and and is the first one to kind of like start digging into like what the themes of the murders are and everything. So. I mean, he's 100% the protagonist of it. Yeah, and I and he's so, you know, even from the first frame, he's sympathetic, and that's something that I don't know that I always find Mills to be sympathetic. You know, he's kind of a blunt tool, and he's hot-headed and impulsive, and, you know, I, I, I there are some well, things... Well, what's cool is, like, he's still the optimist, though. What's so awesome is, like, he is the hothead and everything, but they have that really cool little bar scene where, you know, he's trying to be like, no, we need to do good. And there's, you know, I, I won't believe that you can't do good. And, and Somerset's kind of browbeating him. And he's like, are you crazy? Like, <laughs> give it, give it, you know, I don't know, whatever the rest of the runtime of the movie is. <laughs> and we'll see where you, where you land on that one. It's funny that you mentioned that. I mean, he is totally the optimist, but in a way, I, I wonder if it's because he's the younger man, we expect him the one to have the significant arc in the movie, but in a way it's, it's Somerset because, you know, you think about the ending in the Hemingway quote, you know, he's a man who swung back around to being somewhat of a damaged optimist by the very end of the credits, which is, you know, a far cry from where he was when we meet him in the opening frames. Yeah. And that, that to me is the thing, like truly what makes this a horror film. I mean, going back to like, yeah, why, why this as a horror film, but like, you know, the fact that he, like there's some little light in the tunnel. They had to give you something, but like, you know, like, uh, John Doe wins, he completes his seven killings and, you know, like he actually, you know, is sort of the victor out of the whole thing, which is terrifying, hor horrible. Cause you know, the original, or I guess like one of the endings, they were always going back and forth with was like, they run to the rescue, like, you know, and they cross cut between them trying to get to her and him breaking into the John Doe, breaking into the uh, apartment or whatever, which would have just been atrocious. Yeah. I'm glad that changed. I think I'd read somewhere or heard on a commentary that maybe, you know, the film's ending is the original ending, but before we got to that point, the hit had been rewritten and rewritten so heavily that I, I think I'd read somewhere that one of the original endings 
it was like a traditional shootout in a church and it's just like ugh, you know um it just i thank god it wound up being what it well wound up being but um and of course you know i mean <laughs> of course john doe wins you know of course you know at the end mills is the guy who pulls the trigger i think it's down to not only you know the tragedy that he suffered you know the revelation that you know the love of his life is gone and that his unborn child is now gone you know i don't think it's simply that it's it just comes down to the fact that you know he's He's the guy who was told by his partner, there is no way we can kick in this door. We just can't do it, you know? And yet he's the guy who, because he's angry, he kicks the door in. You know, he's somebody who was told, you know, we have to rein in our emotions when we're on the job. And two seconds later, he's throttling a photographer, you know, who winds up being John Doe. Sure, but he didn't know that. Uh, you know, so of course he's the guy who executes the killer in cold blood in front of everybody. And... You know, it, it's just another thing that makes me look at Mills in in sort of a different light, and I don't know. I and yet, you know, I I still, you know, I we still invest in that guy. I'm just wondering if it's down more to the movie's design or by virtue of the fact that Pitt is just so damn charming in the role. But you know, but then again, there there are some moments in it where, you know, he's needlessly angry. Uh, you know, he is, yeah. uh, he's kind of a jackass, you know, he, there's this weird sort of homophobic streak in him, you know, not just using the, uh, well, the F word early on, but, you know, even being uncomfortable sitting too close to Somerset in a diner, you know, what's the line? Uh, I don't want people to think we're dating yeah, like, on the same side with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the movie yeah. is working pretty hard to make us dislike Mills and yet, you know, uh, he's still by the end of it, we, we still care about him to an extent. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, I feel like no matter what, it's like, yeah, it's like you, you can sympathize obviously by the end, like regardless of what he, what he's, what type of person he is. I mean, that's such a horrible situation. I mean, for her and for him and for like that, you know, what, what like, and I, I really like, I mean, I feel like some of the anger, it's like, I always really like because it feels like that's yeah it's like where does that stuff come from it feels like a lot of that is like really cool choices that Brad Pitt's making where it's like I do you, you sense obviously there's some like guilt of like pulling Tracy along with him to this place and putting her in this situation and you know like there it's like the weird like you know moving blues they're like the new couple in town and they're having a hard time adjusting and everything so like I feel like a lot of that's even just him, yeah, trying to put on a front of like, oh, it's it's all great and I love my job and I'm doing, you know, doing like almost he's telling himself in that scene with Somerset, it's like, you know, yeah, this is we're making these sacrifices for a reason, but it's like the anger and the resentment and fear and all that can't help but kind of creep out around the edges of that, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and where she winds up ultimately, I mean, that's the most horrific thing at all. And it does to me, I mean, you know, I, I, I've seen the arguments where, uh, you know, some people will say that Seven is not a horror film, much in the way that people are uh, sort of reluctant to call Silence of the Lambs a horror film. But, um, you know, I mean, to me, Seven is a horror film with capital H. You know, yes, it's also a police procedural. It's also a detective story. But, I mean, how could you watch this movie and not think it's a horror film? I, I, it has all the trappings of the Yeah, definitely. I don't, yeah. <laughs> What's cool is, like, um, you know, there's a couple of quotes of Fincher talking about it. I mean, and, and he even talks about it being, like, you think it's this police procedural thing, but it's like, you know, this is Jaws. It's like, the end of it, like, the, the shark's coming for you no matter what, or Exorcist or whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. It's like, I don't think the milieu sets the horror. I think the fact that, like, it's the most horrific shit that you can kind of imagine <laughs> is what sets it as a horror film. Well, and it's very much an American Jalo in a way. I mean, forgetting the the bloodshed and gore and the killer's insane motive and the whodunit procedural aspects fused with a slasher tale. I mean, damn it, just look at John Doe's outfit in the big chase sequence. That's totally a Jalo killer there. You know, he is he he is blood and black <laughs> lacing the hell out of his wardrobe. John Doe is a man who would totally hang out with uh, a bird with crystal plumage. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I'm just surprised that's it didn't awesome. carry around yeah, the razor I, I at love, some point. But... Well, he pulls a razor out in the um, when they're looking through his house, right? In that in the uh, and is like 
drawer or whatever when they're like pulling a bunch of crazy shit out of his drawer. <clears throat> I I just when I think of razors, sir, I, I think of maybe one of the most disturbing scenes I've ever seen in any film ever, regardless of genre. Um, the Leland Orser uh, uh, lust. Um, the uh, you know, please please don't make me say it. Uh, the <laughs> yeah, that thing. Um, that is honestly more so than any other set piece in the film. More so than any other sin. That is the one that sort of lingered with me and disturbed the hell out of me when I uh, when I watched that movie as a kid. I remember sort of taking that with me over the next few days. You know, there are several things about the movie that haunted me, but Leland Orser's performance is so horrific that they. Thank, thank God they didn't show the actual murder, much as they don't with, you know, the, the bulk of the movie. But I, you know, it feels like a, a blessing, certainly, that we didn't see even a hint of what happened in that particular case. But but then does it even matter? Because Orser is so compelling in that scene and so terrifying in how broken he is that it's just, oh, God, even thinking about it now, it just it, it creeps me out and crawls around under my skin. It's ridiculous. Well, and that's the stuff that, I mean, that's like, again, just pure filmmaking, pure horror is like it works because you don't see the stuff. It's like the the fallout of all these grisly crimes and like, yeah, showing a like showing a picture of what the what the harness is and then his reaction to it is like more than showing what the actual killing would be, you know, 20 times over. And, and it, that again. And another reason why it's so smart is it's just like it's the grimiest, nastiest like stuff you can imagine, but you have to imagine it because and it just gives you little hints of it, and that makes it all you know all the worse. Like just seeing, yeah, like the the thing that always like I remember creeped me out early on was like the um, like the fact that he took the guy's hands, so it's just like the uh, the fingerprints spelling out "help me" or whatever, and then when you when we go and see him i mean he's like a walking corpse but like you catch a glimpse of like his hands sewn up really gnarly from where he cut him off that's just that those like details are um yeah like more horrific than showing him do any of that stuff and it, you know it's funny too it's amazing that fincher can pull that off in such a way that he doesn't he never lingers on the crude details of any of the scenes and as a result you have the most <laughs> you you have these horrific set pieces. You have stuff that uh, uh, is so crude and so uh, so belonging to like an exploitation movie, and yet, damn it, somehow in the way he chooses to present it, not shying away from it, but not wallowing in it either. He weirdly makes all of that stuff seem classy in a way, you know. I and that had to have been such a. A, a tightrope of a walk for him to do as a filmmaker, I would think. Well, yeah, it's so awesomely stylized, but you know, but it is like, yeah, it just feels like, I mean, it, it looks like it smells horrible. And then he gives you the thing where he's like looking in the bucket and he's like, Oh my, he's about to, Brad Pitt's about to throw up. Cause he's like, Oh yeah, there's vomit in there. And he's like, Oh, did it have blood in it? Like the, the way it just keeps escalating. It's like, <laughs> Oh, that place must just reek and they've got food rotting everywhere. So it's like, yeah, using, you know, all sort of tricks of, of visual storytelling to do that stuff. But then, yeah, he's, I mean, Fincher's got like, you know, some of the best taste. So it's like the, the photography and the design and everything just comes together. And it, it does feel like this high end sort of piece that's also the grimiest, nastiest shit you've ever seen, you know? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's it's admirable. <laughs> and it's one hell of a way to come out of the gate swinging. I mean, you know, he I, I think I've read that he prefers to think of Seven as his first film, even though he had, uh, he had worked on Alien 3 before, uh, which, you know, one understands why he would want to disown that movie. Although I do think the extended cut of that film is far, far better than the theatrical cut, but... You know, I will ask, uh, are you a fan of Fincher's body of work overall? And if so, is Seven your favorite? Yeah, I am. Um, I think he's, again, like, definitely one of the best working guys um, or filmmakers in general, just as, as far as, yeah, like, a style, as far as a stylist. Um, I, I always kind of, 
go back and waffle back and forth on this and Zodiac um, as my favorites of his. But I, this, I think, like, has the edge just because I've probably seen this more. And, it again, like that sort of the pulpiness, like, gets me in a little bit more. Like, it kind of traps me in, I think, than, like, I mean, Zodiac's sort of designed to kind of keep you a little bit at arm's length, you know? No, I hear you. And God, I love Zodiac, too. I remember uh, I was working in a movie theater when that movie came out, and uh, I didn't have the opportunity to preview the film, much as I did many of the movies that came out at the time I was there, but uh, a couple of friends had seen it. And uh, people whose opinions I trust, whose, uh, whose taste I respect, and yet they walked out of it saying that it was uh, ungodly boring. And uh, I remember being put off by that a bit, and uh, I, I sort of took my time getting around the Zodiac. And uh, when I finally did, I'm, I'm so glad that I caught it on the big screen. But I think that movie is a masterpiece. Uh, I even 100 the director's cut. Even you know, give me more. You know, if there's a six hour cut of that film somewhere out there, give it to me, damn it, because uh, I, I I just think it's brilliant. And you know, the game too, even though it's a bit slight compared to some of his other work, uh, although not as slight as Panic Room, admittedly, but. Uh, you know, Fight Club and Dragon Tattoo and Gone Girl. I, you know, uh, Benjamin Button even. I, I adore the man's work and it bums me out that, uh, you know, it's been a half decade since we've gotten a film from him. Yeah, and even, I mean, Gone Girl, like, I, I, I kind of, I like that a little bit more than um, the Dragon Tattoo remake. But, um, yeah, it, it, it is a bummer that it's just like, I mean, I guess obviously there's the TV stuff, but, like, I, I'm not... Uh, counting that as much but like Gone Girl was like so like yeah it was like a cool it was like it, it felt like another sort of slight like it's a cool exercise but like where's the meta you know and it, it is kind of a bummer that we haven't I mean he's gonna he's had like a couple things kind of like come and fall apart but I'm sure he's gonna next thing's just gonna be yeah it's like we need we need more of his stuff like all the time but at the same time I it's incredible that you even i mean again like that this movie exists is a miracle you know <laughs> it's like that fight club or zodiac or any of these movies it's like incredible that he even was able to kind of push that stuff through and like it, it always feels like he's tricking somebody to get that movie made which is which is a feat <laughs> it's very true i i remember seeing fight club in the theater when it came out and i was just kind of like you know even more so than seven it's just like a studio made this movie and then they put it out on over 2000 screens. They did that. You know, I, and 99 was such a great year for movies anyway, that I felt like, you know, okay, maybe things are going to get more bold and daring after this, when it comes to what studios elect to make. And, uh, whoops. Well, oops. Yeah. (laughs) But, but at least he, you know, at least he stayed consistent over the years. So God bless him for that. Now I will say too, you know, obviously Fincher is the, uh, the the hero of the movie in a way, but also Andrew Kevin Walker's script. You know, the movie wouldn't exist without it, obviously. And what a great fucking script that it is. It is. I mean, top top to bottom. And, and again, it's a lot of that stuff is due to him of like, okay, like taking these tropes and, and subverting them in such a cool way. And like, it's just so smart how it, it, it again, it drags you along. Cause you think you're like, okay, I've seen this like a million times in every form. Like it, it, it's the cop procedural buddy cop thing into like, oh, okay. Serial killer thriller thing into like, what is this movie become? You know, it's like, and it, and it's, it knows what it's doing the whole time. Like, yeah, it's a, it's a incredible script. His, um, the, I mean, the movie's, like not the worst thing ever, but like the script for eight uh, millimeter is really cool too. Like that's a really uh, like dope read. Yeah. I, uh, I, I, I will admit it freely. Uh, I love eight millimeter. I, I, I think that oh, yeah. I caught it in theaters as well because of seven, you know, I'm still waiting for yeah, uh, the end of that. I haven't seen it in forever. Real. I, you know, I haven't either. I know it was, uh, it just hit Blu-ray, I think, maybe about a year ago, something like that. But uh, I've been wanting to revisit it. I haven't gotten a chance to yet, but I remember catching in theaters. And, uh, you know, it was a packed house. You know, it was Nicolas Cage. It was from uh, the guy who gave us Seven, which I'm sure was all over the marketing. And everyone sort of came out expecting another uh, another Seven. And, uh, you know, both movies are certainly dark, but 
there is an ickiness to eight millimeter that isn't quite there in seven that left people walking out of the theaters just sort of, uh, I don't know, needing a shower, I think. And uh, I don't know. I walked out giddy, but that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a sick bastard, I guess. But uh, I, I thought the movie was just fantastic. Uh, but, yeah, I, I dig that movie. Hell, I like um, Sleepy Hollow. I think there's a lot to like about The Wolfman. Uh, I even dig uh, Brain Scan. And all right, this is the one that might lose me, listeners, but hear me out. Um, I really dug his Dean Koontz adaptation, Hideaway. Uh it's it's uh, it doesn't hold a candle to the book, and I'm not even the biggest Koontz fan at that. But uh, I don't know. The movie's a blast. I think I put that down to Jeff Goldblum, you know, just always being fantastic to watch. But uh, but yeah, he's looking at his career as a writer. I uh, I've liked more of his stuff than I haven't. You know. Yeah, and you can just see like he's so in control of of it, where he can work within these parameters and different genres and like studio stuff and like, you know, work with big filmmakers as well. Like, yeah, like the, uh, I, I really, I, I recently have kind of gone back, I think last Halloween or whatever, uh, to sleepy hollow. And that was a lot better than I remembered it being a lot more fun. Um, that's a cool movie. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, uh, you know, back in the day, like in the uh, early days of the net, I, uh, being a burgeoning film fan, it was always fun when a script would leak and, you know, you could read it in advance of the movie actually coming out. I was a sucker for that. And I remember reading the Sleepy Hollow script and in my mind having this picture of uh, Ichabod Crane being, uh, you know, more of a traditional hero. In it. And then you watch the movie and see what Burton and Depp sort of did. And a detective. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's uh, it's like, oh, he's not, you know, he's he's not really playing the heroic character from Walker's script. He's playing uh, Roddy McDowell from Fright Night, you know? Uh, I think one of the funniest damn things in the movie is when uh, <laughs> he has this oddly paternal moment with the child who is accompanying him in the woods to find the witch, and he has the gun, and he sort of puts his hand on the child's shoulder, and you think that he's like, it's an oddly sort of like protective gesture. But then he slowly <laughs> moves the boy in front of him as a shield. <laughs> and it just, I, I love little touches like that. Whether or not that came from a rewrite, whether or not that was Walker's intention, or if it just came from Depp or Burton, who knows, but I adore it. But yeah, Sleepy Hollow, I think, is uh, is one of Burton's best. I really do. I, I put it up there with, uh, I don't know, Batman Returns and uh, Big Fish, in a way. It's it's weird to compare them. Uh, I it's definitely Burton, but I I still adore it, even though it's nothing like I don't know most of his other work. I don't know. That's an entirely different podcast. I could talk about Burton at length for hours. But, uh, <laughs> but yes, seven. I uh, I can I ask you a question though. I mean, you're a fan of the movie, obviously, and uh, rewatching the movie. I mean, so many things occurred to me that didn't before, and I was wondering this time out. Uh, just a bit of uh, I don't know nerdy minutia that probably doesn't matter at all but speaking of John Doe do you think he was already aware of Mills and sort of you know did he already have that design in mind for him you know the the wrath and the uh the envy as it were before Mills and Somerset even arrived at his doorstep do you think because there's that moment where later on he has Mills beaten he has a gun to his head and there seems to be that pause that moment where he you know in hindsight seems to consider Mills's usefulness right then and there, I think, or, you know, he seemed to fire a lot of shots at those two guys in the hallway and he hit nothing. And he had already met Mills before on the stairwell as a photographer. Do you think he made the decision then, or does it even matter? I don't know, but I love considering these tiny details during my, uh, you know, 12th or 13th viewings of any film. Yeah, I think that he, I, I, I agree. I think that he, like, I think he was initially running. He's firing like a motherfucker, just trying to get away or whatever. And then it was that moment of recognition of like standing over him. And then I think he started putting it together because after that, when he busts into the place, he calls him and John Doe's like, 
you know, like, okay, I've had to change my plans a little bit, but, you know, you're going to see. So I think he starts, like, on the run putting that together, which then is really scary of, like, are there other bodies out there <laughs> that they're not going to find that were the initial plan? That would be my question. Because, I mean, because... he's been planning all this stuff for a while. Yes. Yeah, he was so, you know, as Somerset notes, you know, he's methodical, he's exacting, he's super patient. He he had this in the works for at least a year when it comes to the sloth victims. So it seems kind of strange to think that the final two bits in his masterpiece that he has crafted would just come out of the blue in the final week of his working on it. But it's almost on some like on some jigsaw shit where it's like that is him setting up like if you can follow all these clues, he's going to like respect and maybe learn to envy you right because he's watching them and everything obviously the whole time and he's like investigating them as they're investigating him which should be like eight that's what we need to do we need to make a sequel to seven where we're on john doe's side well like watching the whole thing (laughs) come down but um they kind of did that with the comic book oh what was that i haven't read that there's a comic of it yes yeah uh i think it's uh Oh, gosh, it's been about a decade or so, maybe even longer, but it's put out by the same company that did that Final Destination comic series. I think it's Xenoscope, I think, but they did uh, seven issues, and every issue covered one of the sins in detail. So you see his entire plan. Like him setting it up? Yeah, yeah. So you see uh, how he chose his... Did you read it? (laughs) Yes, it's been ages. Uh, There were some standouts. The uh, the sloth and the gluttony ones are the ones that stand out to me as being... uh, just really sort of creepy. And plus the, uh, you know, the opening title sequence, how sort of scratchy and imperfect everything is. The comic book series sort of takes a cue from that in its artwork. So everything is, it's not clean looking in the way a superhero comic is. You know, there are smudges, it's out of focus. The the artwork is kind of rough and scratchy. And uh, yeah, if you can find it, I'm sure it was collected in trade paperback some time ago. But yeah, that's cool. I don't think it has any sort of direct involvement from anyone from the films. And yet it was obviously created by people who loved the movie and took great care with it. So yeah, if you get the chance to check it out, it's uh, it's very, very good. Well, did they did they solve the problem then? Did they have the other two murders in there? No, I don't They're recall. Setting up the other two murders? No, no, no. <laughs> I do not recall that happening. So, But that would have been interesting. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> it's funny that they didn't find a way to get it. Yeah, I definitely think he set up the he – he had other murders ready to go and then – or he did them or whatever. And the fact that they even – I, I do think obviously he's like – surprised that anyone's even you know in his mind at his genius level or whatever or could even get close to him um so because i mean that's like just the stupidest move even to like he didn't even like try and talk to him or anything he just walks up and starts firing which is pretty pretty crazy <laughs> um so he knows he's gotten by that point so yeah i don't know i think that's a cool question i, I he has to have probably had something else going and this threw him off the track yeah, and he's such a fascinating villain to me, too. I mean, even down to how, uh, you know, how they catch him, which, in fact, you know, they don't. Uh, that was one of the most amazing moments in the movie to me when I first saw it, when he just strolls right into the station and gives himself over. You know, it's uh, you watch something like that, and you know that even though they have him in handcuffs, nobody is safe even then. Like, he's obviously a mastermind. I'm thinking of all of the, uh, you know, the trope that would pop up, you know, well over a decade later when... Uh, you know, I'm thinking of the Dark Knight or Skyfall. You know, you have the villain behind a big pane of glass, and yet, you know, even though they're in custody, <laughs> they're still in control of everything around them. You know, their surroundings, their big plan, the people, you know, are like pawns to them. And, uh, you know, I, I think John Doe, damn it, got there first because uh, he's exactly where he wanted to be. And there's something so creepy about that. Plus, he had Toby from West Wing coming in to lawyer up, so yep. <laughs> he was going to get off one way or another. <laughs> Richard Schiff is the best. I mean, the, the entire cast he is, is awesome. funny. I mean, you have Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt. You have Gwyneth Paltrow. You know, Pitt and Paltrow may not have been the biggest names back then, but they were still, you know, you could raise an eyebrow and be like, okay, this is a decent cast. You have, uh, you know, pre-fame and then also pre-infamy, Kevin Spacey playing John Doe. Uh but look at that supporting cast. You have Arlie Ermey. You have Richard Roundtree, Michael Massey, uh, Leland Orser. You have uh, 
Uh, Richard Schiff, who you mentioned. Um, uh, uh, Mark Boone Jr. is in it. You have John C. McGinley in it for about two minutes, you know? Uh, yeah. It's <laughs> one hell of a cast all the way through top to bottom. Well, yeah, and it, and it is like taking advantage of, okay, we're, you know, we're going to get really cool character actors here to fill out these smaller roles, but they, like, make such an impression that, like, um, yeah, they fulfill what you need kind of even in little, I mean, the fact that like, I love Richard Roundtree in that. And like, there's yeah. that, um, you know, he gives that little speech or whatever. And it's like, like it feels wasted, but you remember what all he's saying because it's Richard Roundtree doing it, you know? So I don't know. That's, that's a really cool like way to get that much information out or those characters kind of stick in your mind. Mark Boone Jr. is awesome. And yeah, it's like, uh, everybody's kind of firing on all cylinders with that. And didn't Arlie Armory, like, uh, he was, he initially, um, auditioned for John Doe, right. Which would have been huh. crazy, creepy too. <laughs> but, uh, Oh my God. Could you imagine yeah, the him in the back of that squad car having that conversation oh with God. Pitt? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I, I could see him wanting to like wipe civilization off the map, but, uh, <laughs> like, uh, space, see like even i mean it's cool even the fact that he agreed to like not have his name in any of the it's not in the credits right or not in the marketing materials or whatever because he was kind of a thing by that point right or the only thing i, I he was in enough stuff in, up until that point was maybe like the ref although uh the 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 ref is uh such a damn good movie then you know we, we should have known spacey by that point but i think it was uh Oh, seven was just before the usual suspects, I think. And it seems like that's when he really sort of started to take off. But yeah, I, but you know, Doe again, like he's a fascinating villain, but I, <laughs> watching the movie again now today, uh, like I said, it had been a while, but you know, the idea of watching a villain wielding the Bible as a weapon of sorts, you know, uh, of so completely misunderstanding its intent. Uh, yeah. Watching this movie again today, it hits me harder than it did 20 years ago. Um, you know, I, uh, yeah, I, I am a Christian and it's strange for me to say that these days. I make no apology for it. There's no shame. It isn't that, but there's this feeling whenever I note that I'm a Christian, I wonder if people, wonder if I'm anything like the far right evangelicals who are so far astray from, uh, you know, Christ's teachings that they really bear no resemblance to what a Christian is or is meant to be. And yet they've become so loud. They've seeped into the public consciousness in such a way that I wonder if people who aren't Christian believe that this is what all Christians are. You know, these people who, uh, who uh, judge so harshly and hate, you know, hate a Christian uh, and hate so quickly and are so willing to use their religion as an excuse to look down on others, to judge, to punish. Uh, one wonders that if some of these people simply had the permission or the balls or the guarantee that they wouldn't get caught, if they'd likely do just the same as John Doe does in this film. That was a weird tangent to go off on. I'm sorry, but I don't know. It's, it's something that struck me on this rewatch in a strange way. Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I mean, it's obviously, you know, like extremists, sort of the Old Testament God preaching, right? And like old, um, older view towards it. Yeah, it, it is like, um, yes. I mean, I, it goes to show it's always kind of been a thing, but it's like, I don't, I don't think that's anything new that like, you know, people sort of twisting that to whatever they need it to do. I mean, that's, you know, why there's different versions of the Bible in the first place. But, um, no, I guess I was just, you know, even know. the reverse. I mean, watching John Doe today, you know, I, I just watching this movie again, I imagined him being born 20 years later and he wouldn't be a serial killer. He'd be an elected official or a fucking Fox news contributor, you know, <laughs> or it's, or a spree shooter or something, you know, <laughs> but totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, Oh God. But uh, but that leads me to ask, okay, so we get to the ending, and you did note that it was a horror film because, you know, John Doe wins. And the way that John Doe wins is he is his own final victim in a way. So I, I feel like I could guess at what your answer to this is going to be, but I have to ask all the same because it's one of those conversations you always have with somebody as soon as the movie ends. If you were in Mills' place, would you have shot John Doe? 
Yeah, man, 100%. You got to dome that full. I mean, there's that's the thing. It's like uh, no win. It's like full Kobayashi Maru of this mug with <laughs> <laughs> your wife's head in a box instead of the Klingons. But anyways, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I want to see that Star Trek episode. Um, <laughs> I don't. Like, I don't. That would be horrific. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could you imagine uh, probably Kirk holding a board. box and speaking into it? You know, <laughs> it's box been... head in the box. Like, no, <laughs> that's a really Con! weird ending to uh... <laughs> Um Yeah, no, I would fully dome that dude. Here's the thing, though. When I think about it, and I've like talked to buddies about this, like writer wise, like, and kind of what we were saying with Somerset really being the protagonist, like my one sort of like, thing I've been thinking about recently the last couple times I've watched it is like it really I get like yeah I, I understand like both sides of it where it's like a as the actor like I've heard this thing where like Brad Pitt was like you know like it was dope that they he got behind the ending both him and Morgan Freeman were like we're not doing this movie if you don't have that ending so they kind of guaranteed they were going to do that but it was like I think initially or there were talks where Somerset was actually supposed to be the one that shoots him and I can understand Brad Pitt being like, no, it's, you know, it's my wife. I'm the one going through this thing. I need to be the one to, to do it. But like, that's kind of like, like would be a little bit more satisfying. I think in just in both of their arcs that like Somerset's actually the one who like doesn't have anything else to live for. He takes the hit for it. Um, and that way John Doe's, I mean, this is just a, like total fan you know, like theory or whatever, but like then John Doe's not, doesn't actually win. Like his plan gets disrupted. And, and I we still, too, if, if that wouldn't pay off the relationship between Somerset and Mills in a way, that would be, that would be the baton being passed. I think in a, in a strange way, one wonders if that would be the turning point in mill mills, you know, uh, um, you know, for his character. I mean, because as it is, I mean, obviously he lost his wife. He lost his unborn child. That's a guy who's going to be broken. And yet he doesn't really lose his soul, I don't think, until he pulls that trigger. And so if it were somebody else doing it, I wonder if that wouldn't at least give him the opportunity of bouncing back in a way that he yeah, almost certainly doesn't have at the end of the movie that we have, you know? Yeah, and again, this is all like, it's a miracle that we have this movie. Like I'll take the ending that we have. It's great. It works. But yeah, that's always like recently it was cool. We, we got a chance to see it. Um, they played it at uh, the new Beverly here in LA. And like I had seen it once before, um, like at a, you know, uh, revival screening of the, like the silver print or whatever, which looks so awesome. And it's such a different experience. And I mean, it was like, obviously initially what they, projected it with but like um yeah that's a that's a whole different movie almost when you see it kind of like it's a lot darker and weirder looking you know i remember reading something about that in uh i think it was a fangoria way back in the day they talked about that i was uh you know at that time burgeoning film nerd i was uh you know it was like catnip for me you know reading stuff like that but they had talked about how uh you know, they were going to retain the silver on the print so that the blacks would almost be, you know, blacker than black, you know, almost like a complete void, but that, you know, they were only going to be playing those prints in select theaters around the country and then every other place mm. would just be playing a normal 35 millimeter print. But I've, I've always wanted to see what the film would look like in that way. Yeah. And it's really cool. Cause it forces you to like, I mean, it is, and it's time down darker too. Like they obviously brightened it for like the home video stuff, but like it forces you to like, kind of like it's scarier because you're peering into like what is going you know like what's happening you're actually looking into the shadows trying to find out like what's going on or whatever so i don't know that, that was cool but yes to answer your question 100 percent would have shot john doe like no <laughs> no thought given to it like i would have been like damn he got me he played my ass and now john doe has the upper hand <laughs> that's my favorite line line reading in the movies <laughs> and i i yell it to my wife all the time and she's really tired of it just morgan freeman being like john doe's the upper hand like that's such a <laughs> like a, <laughs> like a like a line you can see the line on the page and it works on the page but to like <laughs> to like just scream that running across a field like makes me laugh every time he does that it i it's 
I, I, I got to say, there's something about that line that kind of creeps me out, too. And it goes back to what we were saying, you know, with, uh, you know, with him being in custody and yet he's still completely in control the entire time. The moment, you know, John Doe has a gun to his head. There's a SWAT team hovering overhead in a helicopter with a sniper's rifle. You know, uh, there are two cops right there. And yet you have the guy who's been up until this point, the voice of reason and the guy who never gets emotional. The guy who was, uh, you know, kind of the rock in the movie. And the fact that he freaks out and he's the one screaming John Doe has the upper hand. The first time I saw the movie, there was something so unnerving about that. I remember leaning forward on oh, my yeah. chair and just being like, how does he have the upper hand? What the hell is going on? What well, the... And yet, you know, even though yeah, what was in the box, I was saying, in... you know, what's in the box? <laughs> what's in the box? Yeah. And, and like, it's so cool because it's like, yeah, he's he's drug him out to this place where there's all these power lines. So they're like they can't radio each other really or like it, everything's like chaotic. And it's like, I mean, on a metal level, it's like him bringing chaos to this like police procedural normal movie we've seen a million times, you know, and it's like no one can even perform like how they normally will perform in one of these movies. So yeah, it's like even the fact that like, okay, it's been raining the whole time. We get out to this like, like start, you know, super bright desert location, like where the, like the whole time you think they're supposed to be in New York or something. And then you're like, wait, where, where have we been now? <laughs> or Chicago or whatever, you know, it's like now we're out in the desert and it's bright as hell. And there's all these awesome power lines. And, uh, and do they ever yeah, actually it's, tell it's, us it, what city it takes place in? No, I think it's intentionally vague, which is cool. But like, um, yeah, they shot it. I know they shot it on LA, but um, like a lot of LA stuff, downtown stuffs always kind of shot for different cities. Like they, you know, have all the fire escapes and shit like that down there. <laughs> but yeah, the fact that he like disrupts this movie even visually, and by the end of the thing is is like a really cool sort of like trick for that character as well i mean he like fucks everybody's world up you know <laughs> absolutely and he is to me he's one of the great horror villains you know he's only on screen for what 12 minutes of course i mean you know in silence of the lambs i think hannibal lecter is only in that film for maybe 18 so you know you don't need a whole hell of a lot of screen time to make a you know one hell of an impact but uh but i think john doe certainly does i, I it's a you know I mean, it's a great performance. It's it's a great piece of writing. I mean, it's the full Jaws thing or Alien or whatever. It's like, you know, you only see his effects. You see, like, everything builds up to the point where, yeah, it's, it's this little guy behind the cage who's quiet. And you're just like, holy shit, this is the scariest person I've ever seen in my life because we've just watched an hour and whatever of, like, you know, horror leading up to this. And, yeah, the fact he turns himself in, you know, they don't even catch him, like, like kind of goes back to the or no country kind of goes with as well of just like that's not how one of these movies are supposed to kind of go down like that i i there's like a another quote with with fincher talking about it um where yeah he said the first time he was reading it like you know he's got the script in his hand so he's like oh wait there's like 20 pages left he's like and this guy just turned himself in like what is he's like i didn't even know you know then what's happening you're watching the movie and it's like okay, he's turned himself in. We know there's a couple murders left. They've done a good job of like counting these things down for us and the time, you know, clock's ticking. So we know, and then, and then they pull another rug out from under you. You're like, Oh my God, these guys are now involved in the rest of the murders. Like <laughs> that shit. Cause you're like, there's two more. There's the two of them have to go with them. You're like, are they going to kill him? You've kind of like been set up to, you know, like, Tracy's in the background now, like she's been out of mind for a little bit because they're still on the on the hunt or whatever. And we and we've backgrounded her. So it's like, yeah, all of it just works to just pop you in the face. So, so smart. All right, sir. Hey, I think we've just about reached our time. Can I ask, do you have any uh, any final parting thoughts on seven? Other than the title, which if you look at it, I'm sorry, I, I, I have to note this. Uh, I think, you know, being a film fan in the mid-90s, I'd noticed this maybe once before with Independence Day, which was put out as something like, something silly like ID4 or, you know, maybe T2. But, you know, you look at you look at Seven's title and it's like, clearly it's Seven, but by God, if you say it out loud, it's like, Seven? Yeah, that's stupid. It's like the... The, the Vich, where they did like the two V's on the witch or whatever. I and love now, the Vich. 
A24 has gone away from that, though. They're like, oh, we're not actually calling it the Vavitch anymore, so we're done with that marketing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the seven then thing. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, I remember, and even like an early poster, then they just have the cross, like the little like countdown cross hatching thing. That's pretty cool. Like the. Yeah, and the trailer, um, uh, you know, after Somerset in the trailer notes all of the sins, they keep flashing on the screen in between the uh, the montages in the final 30 seconds. Like, the marketing for the film did a pretty damn good job. Do you know if he had any, if Fincher had anything to do with that, or had he not? He wasn't really kind of probably able to swing his weight around at that point. Uh, yeah, I have no idea. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see what kind of control he had over the movie. I mean, obviously it's a great film, and you know, it's it's certainly quite a bit of that is down to him being, you know, a great director and having a sure hand on this. And he did Alien 3. And yet, you know, I, I, I wonder what it was like for him coming onto that set after having done Alien 3 and having that experience. What uh, what directing this movie was like. Yeah, I'm sure it was so freeing. I mean, he just got to go wild as hell and he knew they were making like, you know, something different at least. So I'm sure that was freeing. Um yeah, he because yeah, I mean, Alien Three got ta- it was a nightmare, right? And it got taken away from him and everything. So, and it's it's wild. I mean, the hubris of like you're gonna follow those two movies with your first movie is is uh, pretty ballsy. So, <laughs> you know, and at least the uh, the Crash and Burn at least got a seven, which I'll take. You know, that plus a all right movie with Alien Three. Absolutely. Alien 3 does have some cool shit in it, you know? It does. I think the extended cut is actually pretty great. I remember watching it for the first time when that uh, Alien Quadrilogy set came out, and they had an extended cut of it. And I almost wanted to skip over Alien 3 again and Alien 4, but uh, I watched the extended cuts of each. And in the case of 3, you know, the extended cut is a significantly better film, uh, so much so that I was really excited to revisit Alien Resurrection in its longer form. And uh, Yeah, they nah, got you. No. Nah. yeah well (laughs) you can't win them all it can't be four awesome movies in a row come on very true very true Uh, and i'm sorry for interrupting earlier do you uh did you have any final thoughts on seven sir no not really i mean this is like i i think it's not even like a forgotten thing like everybody's like kind of knows like oh yeah seven's cool i just when you were initially i was kind of racking my brain of like yeah what's kind of a cool like you know, horror movie that is maybe not necessarily always considered a horror movie. And, and like with low life or any of my kind of stuff, like I'm really into that kind of like cool way into a genre or how to kind of twist a genre or use stuff. And, and like, I, I think that those, they do such a good job of like, like using the tropes, like to their best benefit. Cause as an audience member, you think you're ahead of the movie, like every, you know, couple minutes, you're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I know what this is now. And then like, you know, something comes along and, and, and just keeps subverting it over and over and over and over again. I mean, even to the ending, you're like, okay, now there's a head in the box. Like there's no way, like he's going to like do the right thing and not like, Oh my God, he just shot him in the head. You know, it's just like, it's incredible. (laughs) Like how it just keeps turning it and in every way. And that's like, yeah, definitely Andrew, Kevin Walker, and Fincher, and 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 the actors, and everybody like had such complete control over the material, and that's like very uh, admirable to me. I mean, that's the thing. I think why I keep coming back to the movie is it's just like it truly is like a masterclass in like how you kind of like form, uh, like I said, characters that that like move the plot along and the plot that like really sort of, cause it's little things. Like I love the moment where they first come home and we, we don't know their first names until Tracy, you know, introduces them. And then, uh, Mills is like, Oh, how are the kids doing? And you're like, Oh shit, they got kids. We haven't seen kids. And then there's dogs. And then, you know, it cuts, and he's like rolling around with, and, with them in there. And the fact that like, he's made these huge dogs He's brought his wife and these two huge dogs from wherever rural town they were, you know, they, they mentioned something about like, Oh, I thought we were getting away from monster truck pulls or whatever to, to like, ha- like forcing them in a room with paper. It's like, God, he is like totally fucked these guys up. <laughs> like this, his whole family up by dragging them here. And then there's that little shot of like, of Somerset watching him. And it just, yeah, it like, 
it informs their characters together. It's such a little slight like thing. And it's so impressive that that is kind of throughout the whole movie, like to the point where then they're, you know, they're, they're, they fall asleep on the couch and they're laying with each other where earlier Brad Pitt was like, don't sit next to me. You know, it's like <laughs> any of that kind of stuff. You just like all adds up to really, really stellar work. And yeah, I don't know. It's like, if Fincher had only done that movie, you'd been like, man, this dude is like an unsung hero. So I, I feel like, I mean, it's not that big of a deal, but it's like the fact that he's done so many cool movies, this one does kind of get lost in the shuffle a little bit. And it's, it's probably like the most exciting to me. Absolutely. Now, can I ask where can folks find you at online and uh, what can we keep an eye out for from you in the future? Yeah, I'm just, my socials are my name, just Ryan Prouse. Um, all the low life stuff, low life, the movie. Um, but that's all, I mean, that's been out for a bit. It's kind of winding down. And then, uh, we just, a, a bunch of the same team from low life, my cinematographer and, uh, the editor and, um, some of the actors, uh, we just did, a uh, music video triptych for this artist, uh, Sidney Linder, who, I had done a thing for him before his previous project was called the hotel Alexis and the new one coming out. He's got a new album coming out in September. Um, that is called the silver wilderness collective. And it was cool. We did like a triptych sort of, I don't know, like art artsy fartsy creature movie. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Oh, wow. Very cool. All right, sir. Thank you again so much for being on the show and thanks for choosing seven to talk about. I think it's a fantastic movie and I appreciated having the, uh, uh, the opportunity to rewatch it for this chat. It's uh, it's a fantastic movie. And to all you listeners out there, if you haven't seen it in a while, definitely revisit it. It's totally worth it. And thanks again to all you listeners out there. As always, please make certain to like, subscribe, share, use the comment section below, yell at us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Scream Addicts, and I'm at Jinx1981. Until next time, folks, thanks so much, and have a great weekend. Hold on. That's not even my death.